On the screen, you should see a uh, picture. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. We've talked a lot uh, around here about uh, the adoption process of two of our sons, Jonah and Isaac. They were born in Ethiopia. Our family adopted them in 2009. And on the screen right now, uh, you will see uh, a picture of them. And this picture was taken right when they received two of the first gifts that our family had ever given to them. And you'll notice in the picture that there is a photo album. And uh, if you could zoom into the photo, you don't have to do this back there, but if you could zoom in to that photo album, you would see uh, the first page there is a picture of our house. And we still have that photo album, and you move through that photo album, and it's a picture of our home, it's a picture of... uh, Isaac and Jonah's siblings, um, the four siblings here, uh, what their life would be like here. I think there's pictures of baseball and those sort of things in that photo album. Uh, And then you'll notice the most important gifts on their head. Uh, Two of the first gifts that we ever gave them were Atlanta Braves hats. And I know you're shocked by that, but we wanted to let them know that this is what it means to be a Haskins. You're going to wear this hat. Now, in Ethiopia, they were playing uh, that horrible sport, uh, kicking around a soccer ball and stuff like that, uh, but, but they had to know, even from the beginning, what baseball was going to be like, and they had to know what they were going to be wearing when they uh, were in our family. And uh, I was reminded of this picture uh, earlier in Colossians, just a few weeks ago, when Clay was preaching. And Paul calls us to set our mind on things above, to set our minds on what we already have in heaven, in Christ, to be reminded that through faith in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ, we have the death of Christ that has been credited to us, we have the spirit of Christ in us. We have all of these things in Christ. And even in heaven now, as Christ is seated at the right hand of God, we have all rights Christ has, which is the right to be called sons and daughters of God, children of God. We have that now. And so Paul says, Set your mind on things that are above and everything that you have there. Go ahead and focus on your heavenly home. And as we talked about last week, as you do that, take off the vestiges of the orphanage that you live in. Take off what you know here because you are someone new and you have something new in Christ in heaven I'll never forget one picture we got. It was around Christmas time of Jonah and Isaac. And there's a group of kids standing around. And there is Isaac. And he has a Philadelphia Eagles jersey on. Now, if you know us, you know we are really big Dallas Cowboys fans. And Isaac probably still loathes the day that he wore that Eagles jersey I know Jake and Emily would probably love that picture. But, but you are to put those things off because that's not who you are. Just as you are to take off the sin of the here and now because that's not who you are. 
That's not a part of the kingdom that you are a part of. So as you look toward your heavenly home, take off what you know now. And we talked very deeply about this last week as we we understand what it means that our new home is present with us in the Spirit, and the Spirit has united us to Christ. And when the Spirit has done that, who we were is actually dead. But those desires still haunt us. Those patterns still haunt us. And so we are to let those earthly desires and patterns die in our life as we put on who we are now before God in heaven. And we're beginning to see how this idea of sanctification works out. When you believe the gospel, you are justified. You are declared righteous in Christ. That is who you are before God. But then you begin a process of sanctification, which is becoming like Christ, which is actually becoming like, more like who you are declared to be before God. And so we could sum up sanctification as putting off who we were and putting on who we are in Christ. And Paul continues to explain that process here, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 3. Notice he says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or, or, or slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Now here in verse 11, he just kind of list all of these earthly, fleshly, outwardly distinctions that define us, that define the believers in Colossae. And he says, no longer is there Greek and Jew in the church. This fleshly division of God's chosen people, the Hebrews, the Jews that God had set his love upon, and the rest of the world, the pagan, unclean nations, In Christ, that division no longer exists in the church. Circumcised, uncircumcised. This is the sign of the covenant that the Jews had that separated them from the Gentiles. And he says, in Christ, that division no longer exists. In Christ, the Jew and the Gentile, they are a part of one family. They have this circumcised heart. They have faith in Christ and they have the same status. And then he says, barbarian, and this is really a derogatory term. It would be like someone making fun of someone from eastern Kentucky or someone uh, who is Cajun. It's, it's very rude. Don't laugh. I know some of you started to laugh. But it would be a very derogatory term to refer to someone this way. You can't understand what they're saying. They stammer. They stutter. They, they come across as someone uneducated. He says, even Even the barbarian is one with you in Christ. This fleshly division no longer defines you. Scythian, this was this warlike, savage, uncivilized, and then slave or free, one who was considered someone's property or or the free man. These divisions no longer define you in the church. But he says, notice, but Christ is all in all. Christ is the one that defines you. His life, His death, His spirit that lives inside of you. And so what does this mean for fellowship in the church? As we are letting these fleshly desires die, changing patterns. Last week, Paul told us to to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Put these things off from your mouth. 
These would be the very things that, that, that welled up inside of you toward others who were defined by these fleshly distinctions, these outward categories. He says, put those things off. Why? It's Christ who defines you. And it is the love of God that we all know in Christ that defines us in the church. And who you once were would seethe at the Gentile. Who you once were would rage in wrath toward the Jew. Who you once were would slander and gossip against the barbarian, the slave, the Scythian, these, these, the, the outcast in society. But that's who you once were. Now you are in Christ and you are defined by Christ. So now you must see one another the way Christ sees you. And you are to put off that hate. And what he's going to describe for us here, you are to put on the love of God in Christ. You once were defined by these categories that produced hate. Now if you're defined by Christ, you will put on love for one another. This is what he continues to describe in verse 11. He says, put on then. Just as we last week talked about putting off these desires putting off this anger and hate that is described in verse 8. It's like taking clothes off. If Christ defines you, you have a new set of clothes to put on. But notice again, Christ defines us, but then he describes our status before God that defines us even more here in verse 12. He says, put on then as, this is who you are, God's chosen ones. The word means elect. Uh, and then he says, holy and beloved. The word holy means to be set apart. Beloved means to be loved. And what he's describing with these words here is the way God has unconditionally decided to set his love upon us in Christ. And God's decision to love you in Christ has set you apart from the rest of the world. You are distinct in that way. God's unconditional, sovereign grace that has set His love upon you, that is now what defines you in Christ. That's to make you different. Notice the word holy. What makes you holy? God's love. You are loved. You are set apart to love. And so that's going to change the way that you look and act toward one another. When we think about why we're loved by God, it is only because of Christ. Going back, Christ is all in all. You are loved by God if you have believed in Jesus Christ because you have been credited with His righteousness. And even as we, we read in this section of this list of, of things that define the love we are to have one another, as we think about compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, forgiveness and love that he's going to list here, when you believe the gospel, you are credited with all of that. You're credited with Christ's compassion, His kindness, his humility, his meekness, his forgiveness, his love, his patience. You're credited with all of that. And, and Paul says here, that's what it means to be set apart, chosen and holy, beloved in Christ, is you have all of that in Christ before God. And so now you are to put that on. That is the second part of sanctification. 
take off who you once were, and then begin to put on who you are before God in heaven. You are perfect in compassion because Christ was perfect in compassion. You are perfect in love before God right now because you have been credited with Christ's love for you. You have been credited with His life. That is who you are before God. Remember, set your mind on things above. And so as you do that, set apart in Christ, the second part of sanctification is to put those things on in this life as you set those things apart. And one of the things we're going to see here is sanctification. Hear this is not some sort of generic holiness. It's not some sort of just spiritual qualities that well up within us, that change our personality. Hear this. Sanctification is becoming radically other-centered. Remember the first part is to let selfish desires die, and then you put off selfish hateful attitudes toward others. But what do you put on? Radical Christ-likeness, which is a radical commitment to love one another that he begins to describe here. Notice the first thing we are to put on as new people defined by Christ, set apart by God to be loved and to be different is compassionate hearts. Now, the literal translation of this could be bowels of mercy or tender mercies, if you have a KJV. I don't know, Miss Pam Francis can tell us the translation there. But compassionate hearts. Now, hear what a compassionate heart is it is concern from the deepest part of who you are. That's why it's often translated bowels, because in your gut, You deeply love one another. And you have mercy toward one another. It is a sensitivity to another person's misery and deep concern for them that moves toward them, not away from them. So you see all these divisions in the church? You used to hate these people. You put that off and you move toward them in brokenness for their misery. This is what... Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it's how he describes Jesus as he looks on the crowds. It says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the way Jesus sees the world in its state, in its condition of sin and deception. It literally turns his gut. It makes him sick to see sin and what it has caused us in the world. And so you're to put off malice that seethes toward one another and put on compassion that is moved in the deepest part of who you are for their condition. And some of you say, how in the world do I do this? Well, the way that you do it, first of all, is you see their condition through your former condition outside of Christ. Before Christ, you were someone who deserved God's wrath because of your sin. Think about who you were before you believed the gospel. Think of the mess of your life that you were making yourself. Think about the way when people came to you and said, they they, they confronted you with sin and they rebuked you and you just thought they were fools and idiots and you were going to do just whatever you wanted to do. Think about how delusional you were as you ruined your life. 
and you see others through those same eyes now, that would be me without God's compassion. And God didn't turn his nose up at me and walk away. When God saw my condition outside of Christ, what did he do? He was moved with compassion toward me. And as we have compassion, notice next we are to put on kindness. This is the result of compassion. And it's just simply good toward others. It's interesting that this word kindness is the same word Jesus uses when he says, my yoke is easy. As you are burdened and you're weighed down, look to me. And the burden that I put on you is easy. It's actually the same word kind. My yoke is kindness. I don't come to you with demands. I come to you with kindness to serve you because he has compassion for us. And so we're to put off the harsh demands that we would have on others as we look at the world around us and we see them and we condemn and we push away in demands. You need to be more like me. No, we're to put on kindness that steps in and with compassion and says, let me carry some of your burdens. Why? Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. The kindness of God. God steps in and he bears our burdens in Christ and that is to lead us to repentance. And so when you see others who are in sin and rebellion and you're broken with compassion, you don't want to just step into their life in some voyeuristic way where you just kind of delight in the mess and you like to hear the gossip. No, you step in to say, how can I carry the weight? How can I serve? I'm not here for my own self-interest. I'm here to help you in kindness. The, 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 the burden of sin and the ruin that you're causing in your life that is weighing you down and the struggle. Let me step in and let me bear the weight so that you might turn to Christ. Kindness leads to repentance. I'll clean your house. So you have more time to pray and read the Bible if you're struggling to trust God in these days. Let me come over so you can get with God and let me, let me, let me help you live life. Let me bear the burden in kindness. I'll watch your kids while you go away to work on your marriage. What can I do to bear the burden? I'm not delighting in your struggle. I want to help carry it with you. That is what kindness looks like. I will hold you accountable. Call me. I will step in and bear the burden in kindness. But this comes also from a heart of humility. Notice, put on compassion, put on kindness. We do so in humility. This word humility is a choice to be low. And what's interesting in this culture is lowliness was not a virtue. If you called someone lowly, you were greatly insulting them. Because in this culture, the Greeks prized power and position. And here Paul is saying, no, you choose to be low. It was a term of derision. It wasn't a virtue. It was an insult. Some have defined it as not thinking less of yourself, just not thinking of yourself which flies in the face of our self-centered, narcissistic culture where it's all about me. Let me focus on me. Let me get me fixed. And the way you get me fixed is you focus on Jesus 
which leads you to focus more on others. This is what Paul says in Philippians, that we are to consider others as more important as ourselves. That doesn't mean we just think a lot of other people, think well of them. That means literally that you make others your priority. The priority in your life is the glory of Christ and the way that's fleshed out is others are your priority. That's what it means to be low. And Paul describes what that looks like in Philippians chapter 2 when he says Jesus, who had equality with God, didn't hold on to it. He let go of it to become a man, to become a slave, to become a curse on the cross. Why? For others. That's why God has highly exalted him. Because he became low. Not because he exalted himself. Jesus, the one who washed the feet, not just of his disciples, but of his enemy, Judas. He washed his feet. He became lowly to serve his enemy. This is what it means to be humble. How do you display this, husbands? Will you come home after a long day of work? As you're walking toward that front door, the first thing usually on your mind is, I need to rest. I need to get away from everything that I just endured. And the way that you become humble before your family to display the glory of Christ is you serve your wife, you serve your kids. You wash dishes. You walk in the house and you say, what do you need today? How can I help? Oh, I deserve rest. Jesus didn't cling to rest. He let go of it to sacrificially serve on the agony of the cross. And you are to reflect that every day when you walk into that door. Husbands, wives, what do you do? Maybe in your heart right now, there's the building resentment. He's just not present. He's here, but he's not here. And you're beginning to fume. And you're beginning to push him away. How would you be humble like Christ? Maybe you step in and say, what do you need to be refreshed? (laughs) What, what, What do you need me to do for you? Instead of worrying about yourself, how can I serve others? You're my priority. You're first right now. How do you do that? Imagine if we did that as husbands. Imagine if you did that as wives. Imagine what marriage would look like if we were both approaching it in humility. What do you need? You're my priority, not me. Whatever that looks like. Maybe you're a church member here and you're thinking right now, I have done my time. I've done my time. I've served here. It's time for me to coast. I deserve to coast. All these people wouldn't be here without the work that I put in all those years. I deserve that. I deserve some recognition for that. How do you become humble? I'm not going to coast. There's young men and women here who need to be mentored in the gospel. How can I serve? I'm not going to rust out on the couch. I'm going to give even more for the sake of the gospel. Why would I give even more? Because I know more now. I've been through a lot now. I know what all this looks like and I've matured. So I'm going to display maturity and humility and serve others. And by the way, we have so many people who do that here. Don't hear that as me being passive aggressive toward the older folks here. That's not the case. We don't do things that way around here. We have so many that are giving the last season of their life over to the church. Let them be a model for us. That's what it means to be humble. 
So we put on humility and meekness. Now, these two things are tied closely together, humility and meekness. But what does meekness mean? It's gentleness. It's tenderness. It's to be harnessed. It's not weakness, but strength under control. And it is strength that is harnessed for the good of others. Now, if you notice as we go through, this is all other-centered. These aren't things that we can put on over in our prayer closet without ever having to deal with other people. To be sanctified is to be pushed toward others in radical ways. And here in gentleness, we're to put off being forceful, anger, wrath, malice that pushes other people away, slander that just runs our mouth, that pushes others away. We're to put that off because that's who we once were And we're to put on meekness that approaches others to help. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, when he said, Take my yoke upon you, remember this kind yoke that comes to help, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Someone has said that's the only place in Scripture where Jesus talks about what's in his heart. And what's in his heart? Gentleness and lowliness. Gentleness and low. That's what it means to be Christ-like, is to be gentle and lowly. The one who chose to be low, but also the one who is gentle. The one who is tender. The one who is harnessed. Why? He says, so you will find rest for your souls. I wonder if others would look at you in that way and say, they are like Christ. And when I need rest for my soul, that's who I go to. That's who I go to because they are gentle. They are tender, tender. And so we put off the forcefulness. How do you do that? Well, some of us are just so loud and bombastic and opinionated that no one's ever going to come to us for help. They're just not. We're going to push them away. Because we're not going to people saying, would you like to have dinner or coffee and talk about these things going on? We just butt into every one of their conversations on Facebook with a link, with a link to a book or a post that shows how all their parenting is detrimental to society. You think those people are going to come to you and ask you, how do I parent? No, because you're not gentle, you're not tender, you're forceful, you're loud, you're pushing others away. How do you talk in BFG? When you're sharing prayer requests or you're just talking about the world around you, how do you talk about it? You come across as so forceful and arrogant and prideful that that person sitting across the room during their worst moments in life, when their marriage is in shambles and their kids are are so bad and they can't, they they don't know how to manage it, are they going to come to you because of the way that you talk? Do you position yourself as someone who is tender? Gentle. Listen, what we call people to do in repenting, loving and forgiving their neighbors and embracing joy in difficult times, that's hard enough, right? Living the Christian life is hard enough. You, in your tone, in the way you carry yourself, in the words you use, shouldn't make it harder for others. I want to help you. And that comes across in the way that you approach others. So we put on meekness. We also put on patience. Patience here. This means to be long-tempered. It's not 
short-tempered or short-fused. It takes a while for you to lose it. It takes a while for you to clap back, right? That's why he says bearing with one another means you put up and you endure the weaknesses and faults of others. You even bear the sins of others. It's one thing to call yourself patient and that you will bear and put up with others when it's just their personality and it's just their differences. It actually means you put up with the insults and the sins of others so that they would know Jesus. You're willing to endure those things. They're going to reject you because they're rejecting Christ. And you're willing to step in and endure that in the flesh. I'm willing to endure the heartache and bear with your sin as you live in rebellion against Christ. Doesn't mean you're accepting it. Doesn't mean you just look over it. No, at times you confront it. And then there's the rejection. You're willing to endure that because you see the greater end. And so you put on patience. You put off wrath that reacts and walks away at a moment's notice. And you put on patience that isn't leaving. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said he received mercy as the chief of sinners so that Jesus might display his perfect patience. Have you ever thought, why did God allow Saul to be trained in Judaism to the point that he would be willing to kill other Christians? Why did God allow Saul to go out and terrorize the church? I mean, why didn't he save him at Torah Bible, at Torah Bible school when he was a child? Why didn't he get to him then? No, God knew this life of rejection and rebellion that Paul was going to lead, and he waited till he got on his horse, headed out to kill Christians knocked him off his horse, and radically saved him. Why all this time of sin and rebellion and hate toward God? To display for us God's perfect patience, that he can wait. And now we look on the chief of sinners, the apostle Paul, and we say, wow, look at that mercy. God allowed this life of rebellion to continue in patience so that we would step back and say, look at the mercy And if that's the case for God with Paul and you and I, that should be the case with us for others. There are people you're praying for right now. There are people who are rejecting the gospel, living in rebellion. And it is to test your patience to some degree. But more than anything, it is to teach you patience. Do you understand that? Some of the prayers that you're praying right now for people that you want so badly to get it right to believe the gospel, to go to heaven. You know what God's doing in those prayers as you agonize? He's teaching you patience. He's not just bringing them to Christ. He's teaching you to be like Him. And with every time you bow your head, you should be reminded, as God would say to you, remember I was patient with you. Keep praying. Keep praying. You're learning what it means to be patient. I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking, this is why it is such a joy in my life to pastor in one place for so long, is to know your patience with me. To know, there were things 10 years ago, decisions I was making 
This is, this is the most ingenious plan for church planting that you, the world has ever seen. And it was stupid and it was clumsy. Just, just think as a church body, and this is why the local church is so important. Think about the years of conflict that are represented in this room right now. Think about that. Just being short with one another. Being a jerk every now and then. Going through a season in your life. You don't want to have to deal with other people. You alienated them, pushed them away. Think about all the stupidity that we have done toward one another here. And we're still here. Why? Patience. Bearing with one another the way Christ is bore with us. Then he gets really difficult here as the text continues. He says, if anyone has a complaint against one another, this is actually an accusation or a charge of sin. This isn't just, I don't like you. This is that you have sinned against me. He says, we are forgiving each other. Now, notice that phrase, it is ongoing. It's not just a one-time deal. Remember the disciples asked Jesus how many times we should forgive? 70 times 70, which is as many as it takes. And here he says you are ongoing forgiving one another as you have sin against one another. Because why? You're going to sin against one another because you're sinners. But who defines what forgiveness looks like? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive others. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, which is infinite. He has forgiven you of infinite rebellion against a holy God, which deserves infinite punishment. And so that is the standard for forgiveness with one another. And he would say, so you also must forgive. Why would he say you must forgive? Because you display that you really understand God's forgiveness of you and your sin when you're willing to forgive others. And the word forgive means to release of the debt. So they're indebted to you because they've sinned against you. You were in debt to God infinitely. You couldn't pay it. And he released the debt. He forgave you of your sin. And this is how we are to forgive one another. It means we are to put off malice. We're to put off the grudge that we're holding. And we're to choose to release of the penalty of debt. And I want to be very clear. Forgiveness is not passive. It's not passive. And it's not abstract. Sometimes we think forgiveness is just choosing in our mind to forgive someone. That is not the way God forgives us. How does God lead you in forgiveness? He sends His Son to die for you, and then He offers it to you. He says, if you confess your sin and turn from your sin, I will forgive you. And then when you turn from your sin and you turn to Him, He is reconciled with you. He remembers it no more. It's from the east to the west. And that is the way we are to engage in forgiveness. It's messy. It takes time. Every situation here is unique and it's difficult and it doesn't work out in the same way. But there are some things that we need to do. Some of you need to offer forgiveness to people that you're holding a grudge against. Doesn't mean there aren't any consequences for that. Doesn't mean that life situations haven't changed the way you relate to one another. But it's not just something in your mind. It's, I will forgive you. You hurt me. You sinned against me. I'm willing to forgive you of that. And then if they confess that and say, yeah, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. And they turn from that sin. 
then you grant them forgiveness. Doesn't mean everything's back to the way it was, but you're working in reconciliation. And so some of you need to approach people and say, let's reason together. That's what God does with us. He says, come, let's reason together. And if you turn from your sin, I will make it whiter than snow. I won't hold it against you. That is radical other-centeredness. Because the world is telling you, just get off to yourself and get in your mind. Forgive them in your mind. That's good enough. No. I, I forgive you standing before you in flesh and blood. Doesn't mean you don't walk forward with scars. Doesn't mean things aren't different. But the way you get that out of your heart is you reason together the way God has reasoned with you. Notice, we continue here, and above all these things, put on love. Now notice, above all, this sums everything up. If you are putting on all these things as clothing, love is the most outer garment that holds everything in. You want to know how to have compassion, kindness, patience, forgiveness? You choose to love. I'm going to love you. I'm committed to your good. That's what it means. Committed to your good no matter what it costs me. I'm committed. So that means when it's time to have compassion, I'll have compassion. When it's time to be kind, I'll be kind because that's what I need to do. I'll be patient. I'll forgive. Whatever it takes, I love you. So I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to put on all these things for you because I love you. And so we put off anger and hate that pushes others away and we put on love that moves in, commits and stays and doesn't leave. Whatever it takes today. If today means I must bear with your sin, I will bear with your sin today. Why? Because I love you. If today means I have to be patient with you, I will be patient with you. Why? Because I love you. If today means I have to forgive you, I will forgive. Why? I love you. I'm committed. I'm not leaving. And notice he says here, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is a beautiful word for unity. Perfect harmony. This is what love does in the church. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. mean complete harmony. And he uses it for unity here. And unity in the church, it's not just some bland toleration of one another. Or I just have to get along with you. And we think about harmony. Harmony is not just one unending sound, the same sound. That's not harmony. That's one sound or the same sounds. Harmony is the blending of different sounds into one melody. And this is what the church does. We love one another in perfect harmony. That's a song. I don't, it's not a Christian song, but... This is what the church does. This means unity in the church is not all of us becoming the same thing where there's no conflict. That's what we think about unity. That's not the kind of unity that happens at Ashland Church. You walk in, you think, these people just love one another. They must be all alike. They must like all of the same things. That's far from the truth. We're not the same. And that's not unity, and that's not love. Unity and love happens when you are very, very different. And love doesn't happen when you step in and you demand everyone to get in line with your preferences or I'm out. 
That's not love. That's not unity in the church. Love sees real differences that still remain in our lives. Love sees and knows there is sin that constantly creates dissonance. You know that going in, but you're committed and you're not leaving. And if it weren't for love, Paul would say here, we would not be held together. We would splinter and go our old ways. You see, the beauty of unity and love in the church is when there is real potential for hate. Sometimes that's scary, right? As a pastor, I look across this room right now, and it's scary for me sometimes to know how different you are, to know the different parenting styles that are represented in this room, to know the different political views that are represented in this room, to know the different takes on world events that are happening right now in your mind in this room. To know your different thoughts, even on secondary theological issues. To know all of that right now. And even to know, I know somebody said this to somebody at the women's group or the BFG, and I know how they responded to this. And just to think about all the different personalities that are always smashed together in this place. It's like a big bomb that could go off at any time. It's dangerous. But it's also what makes this church so beautiful. Is that you still love one another. Held together in perfect harmony. Different. Without love, we would just run and try to find other people like me. Like you. We would just run away from it all. But we choose compassion, kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, and forgiveness because we love. Because we love. And we love because He first loved us. He's not leaving you. He's committed to you. Every day of your life sounds a different sound of sin and rebellion. And Jesus continues to move in with the harmony of love towards your life. That should cause you to love one another. I think it's only appropriate at this time, at this time that we set our mind on things above. And you know how we do that? We come to a moment in the life of our church, it's kind of like looking through a photo album where we will take the bread and the juice And we will be reminded that we have all put on Christ. And that is what we have in heaven. We have Christ. We have put that on. And then we look around the room at everybody else who has put on Christ. And we're reminded what we have for eternity. Love in Christ as we love one another. 